And she said, you know, they will never just give you a platform. And there is nothing that separates you from any of the people that have, that are curators right now, or that are producers, or they just believe in their taste. Could you take us on the journey of how you the got thing that I learned about being a producer? Kind of Whatever it's taken to get to this point. A completely different perspective. Found for that. That's my job. Using Heroes, a Circa podcast. Hi, it's Yaron, and thanks for joining us to meet today's producing hero, Shanta Thake. She is Senior Director of Artistic Programs at the Public Theatre in New York City, which is where our Zoom link finds her right now. Shanta, welcome to Producing Heroes. Did you think you would be a producer when you were growing up? Absolutely not. Uh, I think when I was growing up, my first ambition was to be a doctor, quickly eclipsed by uh, wanting to be a performer. Eventually that moved into really desperately wanting to be a lounge singer at some cabaret hotel bar. And then I stumbled into my own self-awareness of my own talent <laughs> and, uh, and pivoted <laughs> to seeing what I could do for the more talented individuals that surrounded me. So you became a, a doctor to other people's visions and ideas. That's right. Really direct line. No, it's, it's perfect. Just to dive a little bit into your, into your psyche here on the therapist couch of um, producing heroes. Um, you came to New York City to visit your aunt who worked at Alvin Ailey. What were some of the those transformative performances that you saw or encountered? Yeah, I think I think about it all the time, actually. The ways that growing up with that company specifically have shaped the way that I see the world. Um, really putting, having sort of my most frequent high art experience be rooted in Black, uh, African-American, dance tradition and all of the stories that came out of that because it was such a narrative form and the way that that expression cemented my idea of what was sort of the height of artistic expression, I think are only even now becoming really clear to me how that influenced the way that I think about work and who gets to make work um, and what that can look like. But, you know, she's worked at Ailey for about 30 years now. And so Every time we would come to New York, we would hang out with the company, then time in the offices. So I think also this idea that the work was being created somewhere, that it wasn't just a staged thing, but I saw that I knew the accountant and the, uh, and the folks making it behind the scenes in a very different way than I think what you think of as a behind the stage uh, tour of what a company is. And I think also the idea of an institution didn't feel so weird and foreign to me, even as I was pursuing my own um, onstage work. It felt like, oh, I understand what that, what the sort of bounds of that can look like and how fun that can be. Um, all the while thinking I would never, ever be at a desk job, that that just could not possibly be the life for me. So I think artistically, aesthetically, it certainly shaped what was possible. And, and then it, on those trips, we would also, you know, often see a Broadway show, but that Broadway experience was also, I think, 
through the lens of who my aunt was friends with at Ailey. So we would, so I saw Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk on Broadway. I, you know, so many of my experiences were sort of a, a continuation of that. And one summer I spent with her, I think this, the, maybe the year after my senior year of high school, the summer I spent with her and she was friends with the house manager at the Joyce Theater. And she lived around the corner from the Joyce, which is a great international dance space in Chelsea in Manhattan. And while she would go to work, I would end up going to the Joyce, uh, you know, during the day, at night. And that definitely opened up what was experimental dance and what was a completely different perspective than what I was getting in Indiana, certainly, where I grew up and and really what I had seen in New York up to that point or anywhere else. So a lot more bodies, a lot more nudity, a lot more um, playing with the, you know, taking away the sort of need for narrative, which I had always really connected to my own art seeing experiences and creation as well. So I think those are those are some really big tent poles that she gave me in my in my art uh, experience. Because outside of that, I was really like listening to Rent and seeing Les Mis when it came into town. Because where I live is you know where I grew up is really quite rural, and um, and the closest touring companies would come would have to be, it would have to be pretty big tours that would make it to anywhere close to where I was. I, I watched at your Facebook suggestion cry the other day. It was so brilliant. Even in its kind of VHS kind of format, it was just extraordinary. And it really struck me that one of the things about that was the, the quality of emotional presence. And I think it's something that when I will, will obviously kind of unpack your your producing and programming journey in more detail. But it is something that I think runs through everything that I see on this extraordinary list of artists and projects you work with, uh, ranging across genre and style, seems incredibly emotionally available and present. Um, is that a fair thing, a fair assumption? Yeah, I think that's a really, I, I love that way of thinking about it. I think to me, I would think of it as more of a populist aesthetic and something where I don't like a lot to be in between me and the art, um, where I don't want to have had to read a book to understand what's in front of me. Of course, having those extra layers of connection is wonderful, but I like I like a starting place where people can can enter through the same door. And I do think, I think music does that better than almost any medium. And I think that's what drew me uh, into when I realized I was not in fact going to be a performer and was going to be on the administrative side or was drawn to the administrative side. I think music was the first place that felt really wide open and and the most available to me. Even though I had not studied music, I had programmed music throughout college and done a lot of, you know, very small scale presenting in terms of open mic nights and things like that. Let's let's hold it. I'm going to interrupt you there yeah. because that's not that's not a normal thing to do. Like <laughs> most people say I, I I I smoke drugs and and try to pass college. You said I produced musical events and did open mic nights. So <laughs> what what what? Yeah, I did all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I, we're not we're not claiming moral high ground here. I just ground. don't lead with the answer. <laughs> yeah. 
but but she did not inhale this. <laughs> she did not inhale. Now I'm 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 curious as to sort of there must be some some moment of losing your producerial virginity where you say I'm going to I'm going to step across this line and make this thing happen, sell a ticket, engage an artist, dream something, and that something that doesn't otherwise exist and cause it to exist. Do you remember that moment or the the first something in those first few moments? Um, I have a I have a couple things that come to mind. One really clear line in the sand for me was a New Year's Eve performance that happened. Oh God, I don't even remember what year it was, but it was one of the first big events that I did. We had always done these Sandra Bernhardt late night events that were that would go into the new year. So they would end at midnight and be a beautiful sort of ring in of the new year. And what it felt like was we wanted a late night after that. I had become friends with a lot of the downtown folks that would frequent Joe's Pub. And so the idea that I had was to do a late night, the King and Queen of New York, which would be John Cameron Mitchell and Murray Hill as the hosts of this sort of downtown extravaganza that would go into the into the late night hours. And this was when I was really barely programming at Joe's Pub. I was kind of the assistant to everyone. But I had such deep friendships that were forming in that community. The Actually, the person, Kevin, who was running the bar at the time and still continues to be the general manager and managing director of Joe's Pub, the restaurant side of it, said, why don't you just program something? Why don't you take your friendships and sort of leverage them so we can sell some more drinks, essentially? <laughs> and, uh, and it was just the you know, the most fun experience and realizing that I actually had something to offer this community of artists that I had sort of worshipped at the feet of and be a, a platform for their ideas and to be able to collaborate in a new way was just such a gift. So I think that was one thing where I really thought, oh, I actually, I don't have to just be an observer here or the person that is filling out the Excel sheets of what we've listened to this week, but I actually have a voice. And uh, entry point that is a privilege and I should try to use that. And the other thing that speaks similarly um, to that is sitting in soundcheck with Penny Arcade and Penny was, is an incredibly generous performer in person in a room, in any room. And so I was just sitting and watching and kind of being a fangirl and she really, like at the end of her sound check, she came down, was talking to everybody. She's, you know, she knows everyone on waitstaff. She knew everyone on staff. And she was like, well, what are you doing? What are you working on? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm nothing. <laughs> you know, I'm here to get you your water and do whatever. And she said, you know, they will never just give you a platform. And there is nothing that separates you from any of the people that have that are curators right now or that are producers or they just believe in their taste. You don't believe in your taste. And if you can actually own that what you think you like, other people will like, that's it. Like that's the secret. <laughs> and, and it's not, there's not much beyond that. And it's really a question of one, of course, she knew the artists that I was spending time with and around and interested in. But also, I think there are people that take up space all the time that give themselves plenty of permission to decide what is what everybody should be listening to and watching. 
Um, and plenty of people that have just as good taste, just as wide a vision, just as, or just as curious about the world and the artists within it, that never think to invite other people into their world. I think those are two really critical moments for me. It's a beautiful story with Penny Arcade and I, I think it's interesting that she said it to you because there is a, a fine line between self-belief and self-delusion. And obviously <laughs> she wasn't saying to everyone, hey people, your taste is equally valid for everyone. She was saying <laughs> you, Shanda, saying your taste. I may have just gotten her on a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But she might also, she probably recognized something about you, which I think is not not particularly, I think you don't do a very good job of hiding anyway. But what is the, the, the line from you need to have self-belief and obviously a massive dose of chutzpah to I actually have self-belief and enough chutzpah to go and do this is far from as easy as it sounds. And I don't know anybody that doesn't have moments of crippling doubt, introspection, and um, sheer panic. Uh, what happens with you as a producer when that goes on? And can you can you tell us about any moments where you think you might really have outlasted the limits of your talent or abilities? I think self-doubt is so, it has to be a part of it. You have to constantly be questioning, am I am I doing the right thing? Am I the voice of that people need to hear right now? Or um, am I standing in the way of other people, other voices? And I think, I think about it all the time. I hope that I have the self-awareness to know when it, my voice is actually not the one that should be heard. And actually, and it's a big responsibility and I, and I really do think the privilege that comes with being these gatekeepers and creators and taking an artist's vision and trying to bring it into the world is one that we should all take very seriously and really ask like, okay, what, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know, um, Because it is, there's so much, there's so much out there obviously and so much to, um, to be guided through and to, and I think it's really important that we are constantly thinking about if we're the right people and if we need to step out of the way a little bit. And in my, actually in my current role, one of my jobs is really, I oversee six program directors who are constantly thinking of new ideas and new ways of being in the world and how we're, um, what we're creating and how we're creating. And so a lot of my time is spent figuring out which of their ideas are the ones that we're going to move forward on and really thinking very carefully about when I put my own idea into the, into the mix, because, you know, the last thing I want to do is put my sort of mediocre idea ahead of <laughs> um, their more vital idea in the moment. And I think that changes all the time. So you know, my, it's also one of my favorite things is sitting and even now in our sort of virtual life, uh, being in a Zoom room with the six of them and seeing when one of them says something and all of a sudden everybody is buzzing with, oh, wait, I thought about, you know, what about this artist for this? And, and that to me feels, again, like a huge privilege, but it's really exciting to be much more expansive about, about who I am and who I get to be in these in this role instead of just only constantly like okay I must think of the best thing I can think of 
<laughs> in my vacuum and then present it and then see if everybody hates it and then I'll go and cry in my corner. <laughs> I don't actually know what, which is the right order to do this in, but I'm going to just unpack a, a single thing from there, which is I'm interested in, in, as a producer in the relationship between data and instinct. When the data is telling you something and your instinct is telling you something else, and which do you trust and how do you balance the two? I would say, I think it comes back a little bit to the question of what art actually pushes me forward, which is much more about instinct and about emotional connection. Um, I mean, I love data. I'm asking for spreadsheets all the time. But in terms of where choices are being made, I think data... Data also lives in a very specific frame. It's often built for a very specific set of people, meaning white people generally. <laughs> and, you know, they're built in these sort of male-dominated hierarchical cultures. And that's, I thrive in those cultures. I love bureaucracy. <laughs> you know, the, I don't mind looking at all of the information, but I think we have to be really careful about what that information tells us and how we've collected it in the past. Like, what are our comparison points? You know, there's plenty of examples of how if we did the Christmas Carol for, you know, every year we would make lots and lots of money because everybody loves the Christmas Carol. And uh, there's another set of plays by American playwrights that are dead and white and do really well for lots of audiences. And we have the numbers to prove it and the donors to prove it and the corporations that sponsor those theaters to prove it. What I'm interested in is the data that says, oh, look at all of the things we haven't tried before. <laughs> And those are those are harder to find, but it's equally important to find the data set that will support not just the idea or not just the opinion that you have, but the data that supports a new way of looking at the world and a new um, a new set of comparisons that says, "Wow, isn't this amazing that we've only had plays by this particular?" genre of artists and our audiences are all over the age of 60. I wonder what it would look like if we, you know, went in a different direction and be able to take those risks. So I think, I don't know, I, I, I'm always interested in what's the world I want to live, what's the room I want to be in feel like, and how can I create that room? data can always help do that. But I think sort of the old data sets that we're used to pointing to often uh, don't help. Yeah, absolutely. My role is to, and probably yours, is to invalidate the data by showing that it, the yeah. graph doesn't have to turn out going in the same direction. It suddenly, it suddenly can turn left. Yeah, we were even talking today about like, what does risk look like? Like, who are the artists we are even comfortable taking risks with? And uh yeah, people's definition of what risk, uh, what risk looks like, I think, mm. lives in a very unrisky <laughs> category. You know, like. Let's go back to your narrative. Somehow at age 27, you land up programming 700 shows a year and becoming the program director of Joe's, the co-director of Global Fest. What happened? Yeah, I mean, I had so many mentors, I would say. I also came to New York at a very specific time, which was right 
post 9-11. So I think about that a lot right now in this COVID moment, what will post COVID look like and the opportunities, you know, the sort of silver lining of that, not to say that um, there was much of a silver lining with 9-11 and a terrorist attack, but certainly I walked into a New York that was very different than the one I would have walked into a year prior. Walking into the public theater where I started 10 days after I moved to New York, it was, it was just really wide open. There was so much work to do. There were so few people to do it. And for somebody that's 22 and has no real responsibility and nothing but time and no money to do anything <laughs> beyond work, um, it was a really amazing time for me. So I showed up and I was George Wolf's second assistant and George was a huge hero of mine and was just such a creative force that he was a magnet for all things, just an incredible person to be around. And you felt it, you know, the energy sort of radiating off of him. And then I was in a space with lots of work to do and nobody to do it. So I was reading plays um, for the literary department and giving my comments, which I had no business doing, you know, and and then helping Joe's Pub with their CD sorting and organization. I built their file maker system. And then it really became about, okay, I like, I really like this and I hated auditioning. This was, you know, very, I was still auditioning, just would dread leaving the office and would be so excited to come back. It just became really clear to me that I was just very ha much happier in this office environment than I was trying to figure out how to get health insurance otherwise. <laughs> so, um, which is also a big, you know, not a small consideration in my life towards administration. There eventually, you know, not too long after that, Bill Bragan, who was the director of Joe's Pub before me, had started also in the, the month before August of 2001. And so he also had a ton of, you know, ideas, ways to, he had to pivot in a million different ways. And part of that was doubling the programming at Joe's Pub with half the staff. So there was just so much work to be done, much more work to be done there. And I was recognizing that I loved the immediacy of music and being in that room. I also could drink for free there. That was no small thing either. And so um, being able to be at work all day and then go spend time with the Joe's Pub staff, they had shifts that I could sort of stage manage, volunteer to stage manage alongside my bartending gigs elsewhere in the city. It was just an incredible community. I mean, that, that team really embraced me. So when there was a job opening there, I applied for it and watched everybody else walk by my desk to interview for it. <laughs> Eventually they, they, they gave it to me. And, and so I started as the programming coordinator, I think. But, you know, I, I loved it. I still love it. You know, there's there, everything about that organization and the hunger to support as many type of, you know, types of artists, uh, the New York City-ness of it. Um, and the sort of ebb and flow of artists that were coming in and out of the building, just I wanted to be around it all the time and doing as much as I could to support it. And so I became the associate director a few years, three or four years later, and then, you know, became the director five years after I started, which was certainly very daunting. And I don't think I would have gotten it had it not been for a big recommendation from Bill and his constant mentorship throughout. 
but also that nobody else at the public really knew how to run Joe's Pub at that point. <laughs> that it really had become its own music venue and they were working in theater, you know? And so they were like, what do we do with this club? <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into the programming there and some of the, the small names that have come past, I'm interested to know what happened with Global Fest and how did that connect with your journey uh, into Joe's Pub and ultimately beyond? The first year of Global Fest was 2003. So I started at the public in 2002. I was working full-time for Joe's by January of 2003, which was when the first Global Fest started. And it was founded by Bill Bragan, who was the former director of Joe's Pub, and Isabel Sofer, who had been at World Music Institute, and Maury Aronson, who was at Crash Arts in Boston. And it was a response to 9-11. It was um, the idea that, you know, borders were closing. How do we really cement the value of cross-cultural exchange through music and the arts and incentivize touring, bring these artists into the country, uh, into North America, but primarily the U.S. market, and show that these artists singing in foreign languages, wearing costumes you've never seen, actually have a direct connection to an American experience. And that there's really, again, so much of an emotional connection that can tie us to the rest of the world. So that was not my idea, but I did work on the first Global Fest. And in fact, I actually, you know, I would say when I started working at Joe's, my primary music taste was like Joni Mitchell. You know, I, I was really a singer-songwriter girl <laughs> from the Midwest. So Global Fest completely changed the way I saw music too. I mean, I, should, I say that I also grew up with a mother who sings Indian classical music, a grandmother who was a professional singer on Singapore radio and a Kadagali singer. So I grew up with a lot of music from everywhere, but in terms of what I knew the most about, um, it was definitely centered in a very American guitar holding experience. <laughs> so Golf is really was one of just like a transformative event for me. Um, and I produced the first one or worked as a producer on the first one, um, which happened in the public theater. So we took over three stages in the public. Um, the idea was also to bring it to actual paying public members, not to what had been the APAP general status quo, which was people seeing artists in hotel uh, conference rooms and the showcase setup. So before that, really most of APAP, most of the Arts Presenters Conference happened within the hotel. And Global Fest was really the first producers to say, let's, let's bring this actually into what feels like a real concert experience. And it was, you know, hugely successful and it led to the creation of Under the Radar and Winter Jazz Fest. And then when Bill left Joe's Pub at the same, you know, at the same time, obviously, finishing being director of uh, Joe's Pub, it just felt like, well, one, Maury, who was the other co-founder, was really um, not interested in continuing being a co-director of Global Fest, which is a delight, but is also an unpaid uh, volunteer uh, director gig and he had plenty of other fish to fry in the world so I stepped in as the third co-director at that point so it was a big it was a big year for me <laughs> I learned a lot uh, I'm super curious how what happens when you have a, a mandate which I think has a fair bit to do with 
saving or improving the world. You're engaging with an artist who brings you something that you think may may do that to some people, but may not do that to others. Um, when you have to deal with controversial or challenging work, and if the editor decides they want something a bit different, I can say, I was sitting in Joe's pub when uh, a piece you programmed, and I believe championed, said, uh, does my ass look big with your whoo, beep in it? And uh, I do wonder um, if that's kind of promoting the vision of the world that you want, and if not, what did you do when you encountered that song for the first time? Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, first of all, it is uh, championing the vision of the world that I want. Um, it's so funny to me what is what people are capable of taking in and what is accessible and hits home. I mean, I think the thing with the artists that I love, there is a lot of transgressive use of um, their power on stage uh, and how it connects to an audience. But there's also an immense vulnerability and heart to every artist that I love. And so there is never, or very rarely, although sometimes uh, shock for shock's sake or um, a sort of body behavior that isn't coupled with a deep look at a whole human being. Again, the artists that I really, that I love, that I champion, that I want to spend the most time with and that I think audiences want to spend time with are the ones that are surprising in the fullness of their humanity. The ones that people are like, oh, no, I know that artist. They do this thing. And then, <laughs> and then as soon as they're able to actually experience the show, there is a constant surprise of, oh, wait, I, didn't, I didn't think that that artist was going to do this thing. I wasn't expecting to feel this way. And I think, you know, Bridget Everett, who is the, the artist of, of the aforementioned, you know, does this beep make my beep look <laughs> where all the beeps go. But, um, but Bridget is like one of the most surprising. I, Bridget is an artist who I have sat um, through shows with my parents who wouldn't allow me to watch Dirty Dancing when I was growing up because it was just, you know, a bridge too far or I couldn't, the, and who were weeping at the end of that show. And there is, I feel like there's, there's a way that an art, an artist who uh, can reveal so much of who they are and be so truthful uh, about their perspective, who they are, what the world is doing. You know, I think that honesty uh, will always resonate and is never, is the, like the most universal thing, that, that truth. And I think the ways that that can be surprising to people is what I'm, what I'm interested in. You inevitably are bringing, it must be bringing things that from time to time your audiences, but even yourself don't like or agree with. Can you, are there, can you find moments where that's happened? Can you talk about how you might, as a producer, have to negotiate that or work through that with an artist? Yeah, it's really interesting that the moment where I think especially, you know, in the, in the presenting landscape, I think there's very few things that I've produced fully that I don't, you know, want to sit and watch every single night or have um, like a very deep connection to 
that artist or a curiosity about what what is the thing we're making all the time. But as a presenter, and certainly as a music presenter, um, in a club that's doing 800 shows a year, there are hundreds of things that I don't need to watch, <laughs> that I don't want to watch, <laughs> that are not inherently for me. And that that's it. That was really, that's a fun thing to figure out. What that means is also the giving up of a curatorial, uh, a oneness of curatorial vision and, and opening that up to just the, the world of voices outside of yourself, which I think we use all the time when we're talking to artists and, and presenters. That's, that's really, that's the secret is that it's very rarely actually just our opinion or our feeling. It's a set of friends, colleagues, artists usually who have told us like, this guy's really good. You should listen, you know, and then if I listen and I still don't like it, I will still program that artist <laughs> because I know that somebody that I know has a community surrounding them also, you know, is probably has a better sense of what, how that artist will resonate in the room at this time. And that's, that's, that's really important. I mean, I will say one thing I, when I think about a lot and when I talk to artists that I, when people ask what kind of artists do you support or what is the, um, what's your advice to artists or, and I think it's probably the same advice that I'd give to anyone, which is part of my answer around curation, which is that the artists that I love and the artists that really are my mentors and that I trust to curate the room, the multiple rooms, are artists that have deep communities and have a serious sense of who their mentors are and who they're mentoring, um, who are the artists that they're surrounding themselves with all of the time. So if you're an artist that has a variety show that you're putting on monthly at a small venue somewhere else, you're probably an artist that I want to work with because you have a connection to those 20 artists that I am never gonna fully have myself. I cannot be friends with the entire artistic community of New York City. <laughs> but I want every artist in New York City to feel like Joe's Pub is their home or the public theater is their home at some level or some have some connection to it. So I have to get out of my own way. And to do that, I need people that have sort of a deep connection to their audience, their mentors, and the people that they're responsible. And that kind of uh, radical, some might say, un-American agenda has taken you to being the Senior Director of Artistic Programs at the entire public theatre with this team of six program programmers. What, what, what does the job entail now? Well, what the job entails from the last few weeks <laughs> is very different. What worked for me is thinking about those artistic directors as my primary artists, as the ones that I'm constantly brainstorming with, in conversations with, about what's happening in the world and how they want to respond to it. And trusting that they have deep enough connections and a commitment to the mission and to their own history and future of whatever art form they're working within, that I can trust that the conversation is going to be a really vibrant one and is going to lead us in the right direction and serve the different constituencies we're responsible to. So, um, you know, the artist piece is still a part of that. What was really sad for me in the beginning of taking this job was feeling like I was so like a step away from the artists 
which at Joe's, you are just in it all of the time. The whole job is your connection and relationship to a, a large artistic community. And I really felt a loss in taking this job that I couldn't quite reckon with for a while. And and I wanted this job, you know, I, I went into it, I didn't get demoted to this job. <laughs> but um, I think so much of my identity had been placed in my relationship to artists and art making and thinking of myself as really the man <laughs> in all the bad ways of that. <laughs> and, and a decider and um, uh, was really tough. Uh, but I think what shifted for me was really, one, understanding that my artist relationships actually became very different and were not as transactional anymore. Whereas before my conversations with some of my close artists, friends, collaborators were really centered in, okay, you have this idea, how do we get that idea accomplished in how many shows at Joe's Pub and what do I need to do to make that thing happen? And then what do we need to put into place to create the world that you need to create? And now my conversations with those same artists are much bigger and sometimes involve Joe's Pub, but mainly if it's about Joe's Pub, I have to hand them off to Alex. But I think my loss of a sort of token to transact with was really hard and now is... Now I have the feeling that we're actually just friends <laughs> and we're building things together that can go anywhere. Although I have to say that the counter argument to that is when I started running a festival, I suddenly landed up with an awful lot more friends than I had before. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I definitely lost a lot of friends. <laughs> I will say there's plenty of people who have not deigned to uh, reach my inbox since. Um, but you also have gone from being having a big stack of chips at the table to kind of owning the table. I mean, it's just a kind of different level of conversation. That'd be very, that'd be very wise not to, if any of those people who've snubbed Shanta since she's moved up are listening to this <laughs> podcast, I would suggest you send her an email in a hurry and say, hey, let's, let's, let's reconnect and have a coffee. I'm interested in, you've been an exceptional creator of partnerships from small small organizations to large trusts from, you know, endow- endowments, you've worked across sectors. How, how, how do you negotiate that as a, part, as a, as a producer? What are, your, what are your superpowers in making partnerships, creating and nurturing partnerships? Well, I think I'm learning a lot about partnerships um, all the time. Uh, and I think it, the scale of partnerships um, that I'm working with is changing all the time. I, what I've learned over time and definitely cemented by, I think, the, the relationships I have now with our public works team and our mobile unit team and our Shakespeare initiative team is people are really cementing for me the idea that it is actually not partnership unless there is a mutual understanding, a shared vision and a shared commitment to one another for a long period of time. Not, um, again, sort of getting back to that transactional thing, but what is, what is it that we love in the world? What do we share about what we love in the world? And how, how are we stronger together? And that, that feels really very sugar-coated because partnership is really hard too. Often, will break around those lines, I think. Um, when you walk into one of those those plush palaces, the 
uh, you know, we have friends who run large foundations. You walk through the the shaggy carpet and past the the well dressed dorm, and and you sit down at the desk. I've never got over the feeling of being a a, a hungry child who wants something that I'm I'm not quite deserving of. Have you, and how do you do that? I think no, I have oh, not. Gotten it was over not. That. Much I feel like I feel that all the time. I feel that all the time. Yeah, so there's no. <laughs> the power dynamic is so real, and I and and that exists. Uh, you know, I mean, I also have to recognize that I am on the other side of that desk a lot of times when I'm talking to artists, when I'm talking to uh, you know coll- other collaborators. So I I feel like it's. Yeah, I'm very clear about when I feel powerless and how how I, you're sort of just going in and like, well, I read your mission statement. I know mine. We're going to just hope that this ends with you falling in love with this particular idea that hopefully becomes your, you know, idea. And But I do think in the end, these are, you know, the people sitting on the other sides of those tables are also administrators that are coming from some deep passion, some well of what brought them to this place. And now I know, you know, the longer, you know, you stick around, you start to understand, oh, the, this person was on, like literally in my seat not too long ago. <laughs> um, so the impulses are all very similar, I think, in terms of this idea of wanting, I don't know, the, this idea of service and, and what does it mean to leave something better than how you found it? And what part am I playing in that? And what do I need to accomplish that? I think like right now, I'm thinking in this COVID pandemic moment of, I don't want to do anything in this moment that's not a partnership because the work will be probably, will be fine. <laughs> you know, some digital expression of of an idea we have, hopefully it'll transcend the medium, but it's not a medium that I'm that familiar with and I'm learning and I, and I don't consider myself an expert in it. So I don't want to, I think the value is in the relationship uh, with somebody who knows more about it than I do. And the artist who's interested in this form and has always been, but we've never asked them about it because we didn't really know anything about it before. Um, so I just think I, more and more, and especially I've been thinking about it really every single day in this time of what are the partnerships that are going to get us out of this? Um, and, and who are we on the other side of this that is that actually is much bigger than who we were before this? Uh, and I think that's, you know, maybe not as individualized, but again, like uh, a much broader brush um, that hopefully is is more impactful and more organic to how people want to intersect with the work. You've worked with a couple of artists in your life and some of them, uh, you know, have gone on to do some things. Uh, I'm thinking about people like Adele, Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, you know, Lou Reed, uh, Elvis Costello, just kind of, you know, Leonard Cohen, just a couple of the kind of the small kind of, you know, the people who don't really, none of us have heard of. But I'm really curious as to as to what happens when you enter the, the trajectory of somebody who is or is about to or in the future will become a superstar. How, 
how do you how do you recognize them how long do you how long can you clutch on their coattails before they they, they blast you blast off into the stratosphere do they you know what happens tell me about the the trajectory of dancing with future and current and perhaps have been superstars you know we always have a joke at the public of like every event that we do um, where they're like, we need, you know, to think about who could come and do the ask for this. And everybody's like, Shanta, are you going to get Adele finally? Is Adele going to come and do <laughs> No, she's not coming. <laughs> she's not coming. She's done enough <laughs> for us. But don't, don't you still return uh, your text messages? Yeah. Hello? Hello? I have a couple of friends who've, who've, done, who've been on that trajectory and, I'm pleased to say that most of them still return my text messages as long as I don't text too often. I don't know. I think it's a mix. I think, you know, I know just as many artists who I think should be, every, you know, on the tip of everyone's tongue and are just the most talented, unbelievably, like, dynamic artists I've ever seen that will never be a household name and will never um, break through that I don't really think about it too much. I certainly, I think there's artists that you see and you think, wow, this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And what can I do? How can I step into this and offer whatever I can to make sure that I, we're not in the way of this? The things like, you know, Adele, those things are pretty specific and a lot of work has been done. I think actually the beauty of Joe's Pub and what Joe's Pub has always been and what the public often is, is that we do get out of the way, that it is about, here's a beautiful room and we're gonna make sure it sounds great, it looks great, you have a, the audience has a great experience and you have a great experience. And then you can just do your thing and not worry about the person sitting in front of you that hasn't gotten a drink in the last hour and is like waving down their server the whole time <laughs> or the microphone, you know, having feedback for the whole, you know, your ballad and all of the press that's there to see you in this moment. And you've just ruined your New York City debut. That was really, that's the job of a venue in that, in that way. And just to try as much as possible to offer, to really offer the stage and get out of the way. <laughs> and that takes a lot of work. That's a lot of work. Getting out of the way also means, it seems to me, loving and attending to the small details in a way that no, not necessarily anybody else cares about. So even if it's somebody else's job, are there times when you've had to sweat the small details? One of the things I will say is that all the staff at Joe's Pub for years were also responsible for stage managing. So we didn't have any dedicated stage managers. So you would all take your turn. So you'd be stage managing like one or two nights a week. And that eventually became our interns. Um, so we were our unpaid cadre of staff and then our, and then ourselves on top of that. And, and I think that that's, is a huge part of what worked about Joe's Pub. It was a, such a pain in the ass to be working all day and then be staying uh, from six o'clock to midnight to get everyone their waters and their towels and their whatever. I mean, that's obviously like a not uncommon nightclub setup, but it's a very uncommon nonprofit setup. <laughs> 
And so I'm con- I feel like I'm constantly like the, I'm still sitting at Joe's pub and then I'll notice that the back curtain is open. And that makes me crazy because you can see some light from the backstage hallway coming through. And so I'm always like getting up from my seat. I never sit in an inside seat because I always know there's going to be something that's going to, I'm going to need to get up and do. Tell me about the program diversity, about the moving of Joe's pub to Philadelphia, Houston, Seattle, but also into the park and working across into TV. This ability to take things that have grown organically and deliver them in other places and other formats. What's the driver? What works and what doesn't? What gets lost in translation and and what retains its DNA? And the driver behind it was really um, probably probably my own need to expand what I was working on because I had been at the public for so long, but also the collapse of the music industry went very clearly alongside a lot of that expansion and continues to drive, I think, how we will adapt and change and um, the changing needs of artists, what the world is asking. And I think a very singular placement of being a nonprofit music club, uh, which is a very rare (laughs) animal, doesn't really exist in too many contexts. And a lot of the expansion of Joe's really was about my desire to make Joe's Pub a nonprofit, you know, like figuring out how to not be about the bottom line and how do we, how do we get away from this idea that we need to only, our job was to sell tickets and instead think about our job is to be a service to the field and to the artists and really adapt. And um, so part of this expansion piece is really about artists, the loss of income from anything other than Uh, live shows and the inability for our local artists to tour. So bigger artists were able to tour obviously um, and we're touring constantly, but local artists, you're not, you're not on the road and you have these exclusivity clauses that cause you to only be able to play your hometown every six weeks, really, but you have a family to feed and you have to pay your bands. And there's, there's almost no way to make a living as a local musician anymore when CD sales don't exist anymore. So the expansion into other cities was part of that. The commissioning of artists was a huge part of that really saying like, okay, what could these artists build that could sit down somewhere for six weeks that they could live beyond themselves? Could they create a theater piece? How could they tap into funding structures for theater and dance that are all of a sudden better off, have structures to support artists that music just doesn't have? Because there was so much money in music for so long that there was enough on the fringes to kind of keep the, the whole thing afloat. All of that expansion was not for expansion's sake or this idea of how to get the brand out or anything as smart or as business savvy as that, uh, but was really about kind of, you know, Vivian, Justin Vivian Bond had not played outside of New York in years. We're talking about an icon, somebody who has truly define what it means to be a downtown cabaret artist, a comedian, a trans icon, one of the smartest, funniest artists working and doesn't play outside of New York. That is insane to me. And there's no room in a commercial structure for Justin Vivian Vaughn. I think there should be. I think there is, but nobody's finding it. Part of this expansion was just about like, okay, you we're talking to 
venues in other cities who are saying, oh, what are you doing that's working in New York? And we're saying, we've got these great artists. Who do you have? Who do you have in Houston that you think is bigger than your town um, that we need to know about? And here's who we think you should know about. So we're in a really great spot of being in New York. Obviously, there's no shortage of incredible artists, but it's a real problem to try to make a living. The 600-pound gorilla in the room is always money. Uh, because with with it, you know, things become possible, and without it, nothing nothing much is possible beyond a certain point. Dreams and ideas are, but turning anything into reality, particularly in New York City, is very expensive. So I'm curious as to how you negotiate money, where you find it, when does it run out? Have you made peace with its curious, elusive, and deeply asymmetric? I will nature? say that the value of an institution is that if we're doing our job right, if we're, if we're putting forth ideas and bringing the artists to the table that speak to, that actually resonate with our vision and our values and our mission that we have put out in front of all of our donors and our foundations and are clearly moving the work, we have the great privilege of being able to sort of rest in a legacy, um, you know, I, I, it's an active rest, but it is, but it is one uh, that I can't take for granted or not mention, but the, you know, the, the fact that I get to say that I work at the public theater means that I work, it gives me a whole host of other adjectives that people put me inside of that make it much easier for me and for the team of people raising money to put forward. And, you know, the compromise there is that the ideas that I have, the conversations that I have are never my own. They're always living in this larger frame. And I have to constantly reconcile, you know, how is, how does this idea push forth this set of values that all of these people have given money to support (laughs) and that isn't outside of that? And of course, that's a, you know, push and pull all the time. And where do we take money from and how and who and what does that mean? And is there any good money to be had? But I think I feel very fortunate to be sitting in a place where I'm very rarely, you know, the fundraising I do is being at dinners and (laughs) being in meetings and talking about the work in a way that that I already have a good starting place of what is we're in a, we're in a similar language and I'm wearing a very uh, I'm wearing a suit that others have worn before me. <laughs> uh, I'm not starting at zero for sure. I found look I found that transition to be an extraordinarily powerful and unfair one when I went into running a festival and was having conversations with people about very large sums of money that suddenly materialized when the company that I'd spend my most of my working life creating couldn't get any of the couldn't get any of those same resources because they suddenly dematerialized as soon as I walked in the door. It didn't stop me taking their money then, and doesn't yeah. stop, it doesn't stop me pursuing it now. But it does stri- it does strike me that that money is kind of deeply random and and uh, and connected to power structures that sit far be- beyond and below what a above what a producer or an artistic director does that they just kind of it exists in its own its own conversation with itself 
what I'm interested in is, on the one hand, you're in this kind of incredibly active and vigorous conversation with local artists. You're nurturing them. People, people the response of artists to working with you is consistently. This is this is exactly the kind of producer that everybody should be, and they're engaged and it's diverse. And at the same time, you're in there kind of trying to, you know, at the dinner, wearing the suit, controlling the resources. And what is the what is the relationship there? What is the how do you how do you negotiate that curious cocktail of kind of survivor guilt and delicious? I don't control? know. I mean, I think it's again like a a real awareness of privilege all the time, uh, a sort of constant grounding in there's it, it, the randomness of it. Um, you know, I happen to have this set of skills that puts me in this position that um, allows me to make decisions about money um, in ways that can impact your life. Um, that is that is, you know, sometimes it's great. It's really great, <laughs> but it's not always enviable and it's, uh, and it's complicated. And I think what I try to do on my good days is really use that privilege to think about the people that are not in those rooms, will have never been in those rooms, don't have access to the same resources, the same meetings, the same curators, and bring those artists directly into those rooms. Um, and, and really, you know, I hate the term gatekeeper, but there are gates everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. And, and I am a gatekeeper and I am a gate, you know, there's, there's so many ways that I am responsible and I have to hold that responsibility and really try to use it to sort of break apart systems I think are, are, wrong and built so far into our foundation that I think, you know, we have to sort of destroy them and, and try not to build new gates, but, but really, um, you know, try to help give people the map. And the Global Fest side, I think we're, I, you know, I'm hand out all the time uh, to try to figure out how to make that organization work, what on earth we're going to do, how we're going to raise money to make this thing happen, how to articulate our own vision and values that uh, in a way that is resonating, that's able to resonate with funders. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And we still haven't figured out sort of the secret sauce that keeps that uh, sort of easy enough lift. Let's assume that you succeed and the world is as you would like it to be. What does that look like? I guess in the way that I think about the world, I guess the largest expression would be that art would be so entwined in everyone's life that people think about the arts as part of their everyday, part of their own expression and part of their responsibility. That it is the most critical thing in terms of how we interact with one another. That it's a set of tools, that it's a set of principles, that it is thought about in the same way you think about, okay, I'm going to have a, I'm going to dance in my living room. And that tells me that the dance that's happening at this outdoor space in my town has something to offer me because it's about an expression that I'm familiar with that now I can experience with my neighbors and have a conversation about in my office. And that sort of separation 
of art from life, I think is, is something I would like to have bridged in my lifetime and certainly is bridged for plenty of people. But I just think we have done such a poor job of, uh, we have made it our job to separate the art from life. And I would like to undo some of that. So then we will all get to live in a, in a world programmed by, <laughs> by all of us, by all of us, by all of us. <laughs> with benign oversight and, uh, of course. This podcast is really aimed to give voice to creative producers and programmers, people who typically get everybody assumes they know what they're doing except for them, who know, in fact, that we all know very little, but as long as we don't send the institution bankrupt and put on something, some part of which is decent, we'll probably get to do it again. Mm -hmm. Um it's to kind of create a richer dialogue. Is there anything that you would like to share uh, for a young, particularly with a, a young producer? This idea of putting yourself at the center of a community that you are deeply committed to, that there is opportunity for you to mentor people and to be mentored is, uh, is sort of a central, central tenant of life. And I think so many people going back to the Penny Arcade moment, I think it's easy to walk through life and think that you don't have anything to offer or that you are constantly learning. And I think it's all equally easy to walk through life and think that you are constantly teaching. <laughs> if either of things, those things are true, you're not doing it right. You know, there, there has to be a world where you are being enriched and where you are enriching and also to diversify, but you cannot just be an arts the producer. You should also be involved in your religious community or in a sports team or <laughs> that this is not, you cannot be an art only human. That, that, that I don't think that makes the world any better. Uh, and I, I think that your ability to be a good producer is about your ability to connect to people outside of the art. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I think be an active uh, liver of life and bring that to your work. I'm Yaron Lifshitz, and you've been listening to Producing Heroes, a Circa podcast produced by Lauren Isaacson. If you've been listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review. And if you like what you've heard, you can find us on social media at Circa Contemporary Circus, hashtag producing heroes.